Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. This episode explores an issue taken up in the spring 2022 issue of New Labor Forum, namely the crisis in elder and long-term care in the U.S. Ai-Jen Poo and J. Philip Thompson discuss the two poles, high cost and low wages, of this complex tangle of a for-profit system. Moderating their conversation is Laura Flanders, journalist, host of The Laura Flanders Show, and our own CUNY TV show, CityWorks. She interrogates our expert guests on both the human costs of this crisis and current efforts towards systemic reform. Take a listen. I am so honored and happy that we are having this conversation and with these two guests. We're talking about care, providing care for the people we love, especially elder and long-term care was challenging enough before the COVID pandemic. Undercompensated, uninsured, whatever side of this equation you are on, and it could be both, elder and long-term care has been a massive issue for both the care needers and the care providers. And COVID only brought this problem into harsher relief. Alone, may I underscore, alone among developed nations, the US guarantees no paid family leave or universal care. Care workers lack basic benefits and in most cases, even a living wage. And surprise, surprise, as a result, there are not enough of them even as every day more than 10,000 people in this country, 10,000 of us, retire, turn 65. And that's a surge that began over a decade ago with with the oldest of the baby boomers, and it will go on until the youngest of the boomers turns 65 in 2030. We have a crisis on our hands, and we've had it for a while. It's only going to get worse. Luckily, we also have experts with very clear ideas for this conversation on reimagining elder care workers and the care grid in an aging nation. We have two people who understand the true dimensions of this crisis and are also at the forefront of putting forward bold solutions to it. Ai-Jen Poo is executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and co-director of Caring Across Generations. She's a MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner and the author of the book, The Age of Dignity. She is also a longtime organizer. 
leading the National Domestic Workers Alliance, which she co-founded, and Caring Across Generations, which helped push a care agenda into the discussion during the last presidential campaign and onto the Biden administration's plate. J. Philip Thompson is professor of political science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's also former New York City deputy mayor for strategic policy initiatives in the de Blasio administration. As deputy mayor, Mr. Thompson led a year long effort with the hospital workers union 1199 SEIU and a dozen care provider organizations to develop an intersectional agenda for change in long-term care in New York City. What happened to it? We'll find out. Let's start though with where we are. Both of you welcome so much for joining us. As I said, this crisis has been with us for a long time, but COVID certainly brought some things into harsher relief, both, both good and bad. I think we've learned some important lessons. But when we last spoke, I think you, Phil, and may I call you Phil, J. Philip Thompson, yes, Deputy sir. Mayor, you had just returned from visiting somebody in elder care. Can you talk about what you're carrying with you in this moment as we start this conversation, who you're thinking about? Well, sure. My mother-in-law lives with us for the last six years, and she's 87, and she had a bad night last night. And so literally, this is a daily issue for me, and we have a wonderful home care aide, but she's pretty overwhelmed. My mother lived with us before my mother-in-law for 10 years, and in the last two years, she had home care and it was a struggle. These, these women had to travel three hours every day just to get here. My uncle's in a nursing home. I went to see him a couple of weeks ago. And the nursing home is so short-staffed that in the entranceway, when you open the door, there was a woman screaming on the floor. She had COVID and she was screaming, get me out of here, get me out of here. And we had to step over her to even get into the facility, which was a 300-bed facility, mainly of elderly folks of color in Philadelphia. And the conditions honestly broke my heart. Yeah. And it's, it's, the system is so broken at, at every level. And I know I'm, I'm one of 20, 25 million people who are taking care of either an elder person in their family or a disabled person in their family. So this is a national crisis that folks just aren't talking about enough. Ijin, who are you carrying with you into this conversation? And can you just remind us what your average care worker is paid per hour? Uh, the Well, first, it's great to be with you. Phil is one of my heroes and mentors. And Laura, you were one of the first people who actually heard us when we were crying out about this care crisis and really helped amplify this story. So I just want to say thank you. And it's great to be reconnecting and talking about this again. And Phil, you're not only among 25 million, you're actually among 49 million working family caregivers in this country who are caring for an aging loved one or a loved one with a disability and trying to manage work at the same time. And there's nothing in place in our country to support you, except for an overworked, underpaid workforce, mostly women and majority women of color, 
30% Black women who are paid an average of $18,200 per year. Imagine trying to support yourself and pay the bills, let alone raise a family on $18,200 a year in a place like New York, for example, it's actually untenable. And what we see happen all the time is that we lose some of our most dedicated, most committed care workers to other low-wage service jobs because they just can't make ends meet. And I was just talking to one of our members in Georgia who was working as a home care worker for $8 an hour, and it was such a struggle to manage. She had to every week decide between, do I put gas in my car to get to my clients or do I buy groceries for the week on $8 an hour? And she finally, it was so stressful for her and her family. She finally decided to take a job in manufacturing that paid $15 an hour instead, even though she was completely dedicated to being a care worker and really saw it as her calling. That's how it is. I, Jen, talk about what COVID has changed. I mean, we have long absorbed the message from every possible message sender that these questions of care are private. Often we feel that they're a result of a personal problem and that they are for us to bear alone. COVID, it seems to me, revealed, whoa, this is not a private problem. This is a structural problem and it's affecting our society as a whole. We saw a massive departure of women from the workforce. And now people talk about where are those workers? Is this crisis causing us to think differently about care, especially elder and long-term care? I certainly hope so. If this doesn't help us see things differently, I don't know what will, to be honest. I mean, I think what happened is that we were all feeling different versions of a crisis before the pandemic, but we largely considered it a crisis of personal failures. Like we didn't save enough money, we don't have the right job, we did something wrong. And I think what the pandemic helped us see is that we are doing the very best we can and it is not sufficient. We actually need public policy. We need programs. We need a strong workforce to support us. And it's not that we don't have individual responsibility. It's that it's not enough. And we actually need collective solutions here. So that's what has been at the heart of our ability to push this issue to the top of the agenda. We've also started to articulate a much more holistic kind of set of needs around care, which people really felt in the pandemic when their kids were home from school. They're struggling to navigate online learning. Daycares were closed. Nursing homes were closed. Relatives thousands of miles away, and you don't know who's going to take care of them or check in on them. And we realized that it's actually a holistic problem about care across the lifespan and that we need to have a different kind of infrastructure or grid to support everything from childcare to paid leave to long-term care. Now, Phil, you were actually talking about a kind of grid approach to care in Brooklyn in the de Blasio administration before COVID. And we'll get more into the details of what you were working on, but you were kind of in the room or at least close to the room as it happened, as COVID happened. 
two years ago, more or less as we're speaking, the city declared an emergency. What was the picture of care at that point? And what did you see emerge? Well, the year before COVID hit, about 20 provider organizations and unions like 1199 and Nurses Union, we all worked together and came up with an agenda really for advocacy because most funding for home care is state as well as for nursing homes, it's not city. And we said what we could do is organize and make this an issue and press for change at the state and federal level. And so just as we were got together our agenda and agreed on it, and we're talking about, okay, how do we organize a campaign? Then COVID hit. And that same network, we transitioned to how do we actually have protective gear for home care workers who didn't, couldn't afford it, didn't have access to it, and nursing home workers who also didn't have protective gear and many of them died. And they were absolutely on the front line. We're not talking one or two or a dozen or a few hundred, we're talking tens of thousands of care workers died. Well, you know, nationally, absolutely. In, in New York, hundreds. And it was just a severe crisis. You had, at one point, people were just putting bodies and body bags in, in rental trucks and without proper equipment. People continued to go to work. I mean, the dedication of these women, the mostly women, the care they have, the love they have for the people they take care of, to me is one of the most sinister aspects of our system right now, which is that it even exploits our love for one another, the very, our depths of humanity, because these workers show up despite minimum wage and sub-minimum wage, they still come and they still provide that care. And there's no way the amount of money they make matches what they do. And throughout the pandemic, that's how New York City got through it. It was the, these kind of workers, as well as the workers who showed up in supermarkets and other places and put themselves at risk, all the while being treated badly. Is it your feeling now that something different could have happened at that moment? Or did the city simply, as you say, not have the tools that it needed? Well, the city scrambled to, to just get through this. And I think one of the things that happened through the pandemic, initially, people saw it as, well, you know, we just need more nurses we, in the hospitals. We just need more doctors. And we did. We just need more PPE equipment, and we did. But the more we got into it, the whole city began to see it as an issue of racial disparity, of the health department declared racism an emergency in New York. They came to see that it was a disparity of class and gender, and that our problems went far deeper. Our whole city shifted to how do we get at these deeper problems? And we even formed a charter revision commission to rewrite the city's constitution to focus on racial justice because of that. If people want to see more about that, we did an episode of City Works just recently on exactly that resolution. Ijen, coming back to you, in the middle of all of this, we have an election campaign and a campaign that not for lack of trying, but this time finally did have the word care in it. 
Coming out of that campaign, we had a care agenda talked about by the Biden administration and even integrated into the macro version of Build Back Better. For all of that, we give you and your colleagues, your, your organized folks all across this country, enormous credit. It shouldn't have been this hard, but it was really hard to get that far. I'd love you to talk a little bit about that work, highs and lows thereof. And then of course, we need to talk about where we are right now. Absolutely. So what's really extraordinary is that a transformative progress has been made. The fact that President Biden, when he was still a candidate, announced that one of the core pillars of his economic agenda was going to be focused on caregiving was already a huge breakthrough. That has never happened before, that we had a leading candidate for president of the United States make caregiving a core pillar of their economic agenda, not their women's agenda, not their family agenda, the economic agenda. And the way that it was created was actually a holistic approach. It included childcare, paid family and medical leave, and home and community-based care for the aging and people with disabilities. And then the other big breakthrough was that included in that agenda was an emphasis on making these jobs good jobs. That these are jobs that have been undervalued for too long and overwhelming disproportionately women of color doing them and that we have to make them good jobs. And what happened in the course of the administration taking office is that this agenda became a core part of the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan, and then what became the Build Back Better Act. We got it done in the House. The House passed a bill, a reconciliation bill that includes childcare, pre-K, making affordable quality childcare much more widely accessible, making pre-K universal, four weeks paid family and medical leave, and $150 billion invested in expanding access to home care and raising wages for the home care workforce. Where we are now, <laughs> we just actually organized a big Care Can't Wait Time for Action Summit yesterday that the president joined us for. And we had members of Congress from the Senate, from both sides, everybody talking about the urgency of investing in the care economy. And I believe that it's not over yet, that we still have the opportunity to achieve big investments through our budget reconciliation process in childcare, in home and community-based services, and in a way that really lays a strong foundation for the care economy going forward. And I think the window to do that is going to be limited because this is a pivotal midterm election year and a lot of focus is going to be on the election. Now, with what's happening in the Ukraine, there's obviously, as there should be, a lot of focus there. There's also going to be a Supreme Court nominee and a government funding bill to pass. So there's a lot on the agenda of the Senate, but it is not over. And I think if our Senate leadership hears from us about how urgent and important this is, it can still make it onto the agenda. Because it's so important, so much of what you said, for the first time to see care essentially as a piece of infrastructure is what you've been talking about. And what seems to sort of hang in the balance is 
are we going to realize that? Are we going to see that shift in our thinking? Phil, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what happened at the federal level and whether there's a parallel push at the local. Are we there at talking about care in a different way? One of the problems is that when you start talking about paying care workers more, folks who sit in legislatures who vote on budgets and governors and mayors, they start saying, well, what about homelessness? And what about affordable housing? And what about all the other things that people also need? And this is just another expense. And so we never really get around to investing in enough to really fix our care system. The, what folks don't understand is that actually paying home care workers better, training them better, saves a tremendous amount of money. And if we don't have care workers who know how to observe what's going on with a patient in their home, care for wounds, help folks with their diabetes, take them on walks and do physical therapy, those people are going to the emergency room where costs are astronomical. And that's what happened during COVID. We flooded the emergency rooms. One in five New Yorkers is gonna be elderly within a few years. And if we don't fix our home care system, the folks are gonna be flooding our emergency rooms just like what happened during COVID. That's what's coming. Meanwhile, there's an extreme shortage of home care workers in New York. You can't find one. Our main training organizations are actually our community colleges. And I went to a bunch of, a bunch of them and said, we have a home care shortage. Why aren't you training more home care workers? And a bunch of them said, because we think it's unethical to train people to go in a profession that pays so little and there's no room for advancement. For ethical reasons, we're not training home care workers. That's where we are. That's how broken the system is. And so we have a lot of work to do to really educate folks. And I'll also take a swipe at labor while I'm at it. Labor unions to this day tend to organize around self, what they call self-interest. So the unions that think about physical infrastructure are all out there organizing for the infrastructure bill to fix roads and bridges. But when it comes to the care infrastructure, very hard to find them doing work. And the unions that focus on care don't really engage so much on the physical infrastructure side, but the reality is construction workers have mothers and fathers and elderly and disabled people and care workers need their kids to have good jobs and they need affordable housing and all these other things that are needed on the physical side. And so we all need to just really pitch in together and get behind what IGEN is talking about. We really need to pass this Build Back Better legislation in whatever kind of form, we all need it. IGEN, while we're doing mea culpas and criticism, self-criticism of movement-aligned organizations like trade unions, let's talk about those who were pushing for Build Back Better and, and talk more broadly about our political spectrum, let's just say on the left-hand side of the spectrum. Right now, we see a military industrial complex that is always very good at finding the money, whether it's needed or not. And certainly in the last few months, we've seen, I think it's $76 trillion or something crazy granted for the military. They'll be justifying that in this moment with a single voice. We're always told the money isn't there. 
for the services, for the infrastructure of the sort that Phil is talking about. And we've often responded with a, a group talking about elder care, a group talking about long-term care for people who've been disabled, childcare, you name it. How are we doing integrating these demands, which I think was one of the initiatives, the great initiatives of caring across generations? I think we're doing better than ever, to be honest. I mean, these are interests that always get pitted against each other because of what Phil said in terms of limited funding, right? So it's always been posed as you want more money for services and more people to get access to services. You got, you're not going to be able to pay workers more. And with limited budgets, we've been very susceptible to that kind of zero-sum scarcity pitting against one another, when in the end, these two goals of expanding services and improving the quality of jobs for the workforce are completely interdependent. If we don't have a strong workforce, who's going to provide these services? It's just not going to happen. And I think at this point, we finally have a moment where people get that. And what we saw during Care Can't Wait, which is the campaign that came together to push for the care agenda within Build Back Better, we have disability rights and justice advocates, we have older adult advocates, we have labor unions, we have groups like ours, we have family caregiver groups, everybody under one umbrella, laser focused and moving together with one voice in a way that has never happened. Igen, are there models of stuff working, initiatives working, not just at the federal level, at the level of policy, but at the level of practice where you are? Yeah, so I think Washington State is a great example of a place where the Service Employees International Union has built a really strong home care workers union, and they have also built a very strong training institution that is the second largest educational institution in the state after the University of Washington. They train 40,000 home care workers a year in 12 different languages with continuing education in the form of pop-ups in rural communities. And, and the starting wages for a home care worker in Washington as a result of the power that this union has built are 17 an hour and they have not only health care and paid time off, but they also have retirement benefits. And as a result, Washington State is among the most prepared places in the country for the coming demand for home care. Um, they actually have a workforce that is strong and getting stronger. So I, I, I mean, obviously $17 is not enough, <laughs> but it's a starting salary and they've come a long way and it's, it gives you a sense of this is possible. We can do this. And that is what the Build Back Better investments would enable is states around the country to really take up modernizing access to home and community-based care and strengthening the workforce in ways that are really 20 years overdue. Can we talk about the scandal in senior care facilities in New York State during COVID? I'm sure that's in the back of people's mind as they hear this conversation. It's like, yeah, I want senior care, I want better care, but weren't those centers a sort of locus of death for a lot of elders? Why would I either want to work there, send my senior there, or really care? I don't know as much about the specifics of what happened in New York. So I'd love to hear Phil's thoughts, but I 
did um, one of the reasons why I got so involved in expanding access to home care was because my grandfather was in a facility like that. When he lost his vision and had all kinds of complex health issues, we couldn't find the right home care support for him and had to place him in a nursing home against his wishes. And visiting him there was the single most heartbreaking experience of my life. And I will never forget it. Being in a room where all of these elders who have given us their lives are living in the most undignified conditions, supported by a workforce that is given absolutely untenable responsibility to care for dozens of people every hour. It's, it's literally impossible. And I'm not saying that every facility is that way, but this is pre-COVID, right? This is many years before COVID. And, and there has for years been a movement called the culture change movement to try to change conditions within nursing homes because of the devastating and undignified conditions in so many of these facilities. So I can only imagine what the additional pressure of a pandemic did to these facilities and the people who work in them and the people who rely on them. One of the problems in New York nursing homes is that it's become a profit center for for-profit private equity. And they get into nursing homes and they pare down staffing in order to increase profits. We're also seeing private equity firms buy nursing homes because they want the underlying real estate so they can sell off, you know, get rid of the nursing home and then build luxury condos. And so that has been a problem for years, so much so that the unions that represent nursing home workers have prioritized staffing over their own pay when it comes to contract negotiations. And these are really low paid poverty wage workers, but they said the care level is so bad, we have to prioritize our patients which is incredible when you think about it. But that's literally what's been happening in the nursing home field. So that is an underlying problem. And these same private nursing homes put a lot of money into political contributions, by the way, at the local level. So we don't see a lot of intervention and change. It was a heroic assemblyman, Ron Kim from Queens, who really exposed this this whole thing. He deserves a lot of credit. And actually he's Maybe the reason the governor is not the governor anymore because of what he did. But he, he just said, I don't care if I'm reelected. I just don't care. This is wrong. We have to take a stand. I, I think ultimately we have to federalize funding for nursing homes and, and home care because right now you need a state match for funding. And I just think that's dysfunctional and makes it subject to a lot of political stuff. And we need to take this issue as one that's about our loved ones. As I Jen said, it's about who we are as a people, as a nation. These are our loved ones, the ones who raised us, who cared for us. We're not going to throw them away because they're not profitable. So Ijen, we want our marching orders. People want their marching orders of what they can do, especially if they're in, for example, trade unions or maybe at the top of a trade union. Then I want to just move towards maybe ending where we began, which is we can talk instruments that will make the change. We can talk policy that will make the change. But you said something very powerful early on, Ijen, which was that for the first time in the last election, 
care was an issue at the level that it was in, in the last election as part of an economic agenda, as part of an infrastructure agenda. And, and you, Phil, in an earlier conversation said, there's, an there's, a, there's a question of attitude here. There's a question of morality here. And one thing we haven't really talked about is sure, there are obstacles of the electoral kind, but is there an obstacle of the race and gender kind that is holding us back from making this change? But first, Ijen, if we're on board, what do we do? You can sign up at caringacrossgenerations.org or at carecantwait.org and you'll get regular updates and calls to action. And we are working together at the National Domestic Workers Alliance currently with the AFL-CIO, SEIU, AFT, UAW, Unite Here, a whole group of unions to put together an event during Women's History Month to honor the contributions of women in the economy, and to highlight the urgency of these kinds of investments in the Build Back Better agenda. So that will be coming up in March during Women's History Month. And if you sign up at either of those locations, we'll make sure you have the details and would love to get more local unions involved in cross-posting and being a part of a union call to action around the care investments in Build Back Better. And I guess one thing I will say is that our, our elected leaders, they have millions of people calling about millions of different things every single day. And this is something that they need to hear from us about. We all have care in common. We all have care stories. I think what needs to happen in this moment is to really cement care as a political issue that our elected leaders have to take up and lead on if they want to stay in office or get elected. And I think it's up to us to communicate that message. Um, otherwise, it's just not going to happen. That website again, caringacross.org, caringacross.org. Phil, do we have a moral agenda here? I, I think we do. And I just think we need to talk to each other more. And by that, I mean people of color and poor white folks, we need to talk to each other more. I was invited some years ago to Alabama to address a large group of white workers. And the topic was Trump's budget. And they were under the impression that Medicaid really was servicing immigrants, many undocumented who are coming over here to get care or servicing black folks in the Bronx who don't want to work. And that hardworking white folks were just paying for all these other undeserving folks. That was kind of their image. And I said, did you know in Alabama, 62% of the people on Medicaid are white? And I understand you don't like black folks, but do you hate us so much you want to kick, kick your grandmother out of her nursing home? Or you don't want your daughter to get her teeth fixed? Is, is, do you hate us that much? And by the way, Trump cut taxes on billionaires and multimillionaires, I said to them, how many of those millionaires and billionaires live in Alabama? So who's really benefiting from that? I said, they live in New York. That's where I'm from. We're going to tax their behinds. So we'll get some of that back. But what are you going to do? You know, you can't get to them. What are you going to do? They appreciated it so much. They said, will you please come back? Because we didn't hear this on Fox News. No one 
talk to us like that. I said, I'm busy. I got my family. They said, we'll pay for your family to come back. We really need to have this conversation. These were white workers in Alabama. I really feel like we're very siloed and we need to talk to each other. And if we actually do talk to each other, we'll build political strength and consensus, I think all across America. I say, go to community colleges. There may not be unions in Alabama. There are a ton of community colleges full of white folks, young white folks who are struggling. And that's an atmosphere where they're there to learn. We should be all over those places. I just feel like we're not talking enough. Obviously, trade unions, part of the attack on trade unions was an attack on an agency of political education for people, popular education. We don't have that. Instead, we have a whole lot of media that is underwritten by Big Pharma and, and, and the insurance companies. Thank you so much for this conversation. We may not have solved the problem, but I feel better just the way we've talked about it here. I, Jim Poo, J. Philip Thompson, thank you for your work. May we make progress together, onward and upwards. I'm Laura Flanders. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.